If you have your Bibles today, I invite you to turn to our text, which is found in Numbers chapter 30. And I'll read verses 1 through 5. Numbers 30, verses 1 through 5. And Moses spake unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord, and bind herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, and her father hear her vow, and her bond wherewith she hath bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul, shall stand. But if her father disallow her in the day that he heareth, not any of her vows or of her bonds, wherewith she hath bound her soul, shall stand. And the Lord shall forgive her, because her father disallowed her. <clears throat> Lord bless his word today to our understanding, and to our growth in Christ. Because a national covenant sworn to the Lord is a kind of vow, there is at least one objection that has been raised which appeals to the scriptural warrant that a father has to render null and void certain vows made by an unmarried daughter living under his roof. The connection of this objection to the Solemn League and Covenant may be stated in this way. Just as a father in the family is given rule by God over his unmarried daughter, so the father of a nation, <clears throat> that is a lawful king, is given rule by God over his people. And just as one aspect of that lawful rule of a father over his daughter includes rendering certain vows either effective or non-effective, according to Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, so likewise the father of a nation by extension or by application, may render the national covenant of his people either effective or non-effective. <coughs> As it relates to the Solemn League and Covenant, it has been proposed by some who oppose the Solemn League and Covenant that Charles I, Charles II, or any other British king had the scriptural right to render null and void the Solemn League and Covenant because of the father-like authority invested in him by God. 
And having that right, as the objection goes, Charles II did, in fact, render the Solemn League and Covenant null and void by an act of the king and subsequently by an act of the parliament in January of 1661. Well, what should we make of this objection? The scripture is used in this objection, but is the scripture properly interpreted and applied to the national vow called the Solemn League and Covenant? Well, let us then consider the following objection stated this way. A national vow may be rendered null and void by the national father, that is the king. Well, let's first consider the context and teaching found in Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> the Lord gave through Moses instruction concerning vows made unto God. We see in verse 1, chapter 30, verse 1, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Vows are indeed binding upon the moral person making the vow, whether individually or whether collectively, provided the vow is lawful. However, there are specific circumstances enumerated by God in which even lawful vows may, made by those under the authority of a father may be rescinded, as we shall see. What are the circumstances in the case under consideration here in Numbers chapter 30? What are the circumstances? Well, first of all, this situation specifically relates to a daughter living under the roof and authority of her father. It says in Numbers 30, verse 3, being in her father's house. We might say that the same commandments uh, and the same instruction is given to wives, those who are married, who have husbands, in Numbers chapter 30, verses 6 through 16. We're not going to focus on those verses. We're simply focusing on the first five verses today. But similar instruction is given with regard to wives and husbands as well. A further qualification is made by the Lord about this specific case as well. This daughter is in her minority. Numbers 30, verse 3, in her youth, in her youth. In Numbers 30, verse 16, being yet in her youth, in her father's house. She's a minor. It would appear that the Lord was concerned that such young daughters, and again by way of application perhaps to even sons in their minority as well, the Lord was concerned that such young daughters be of sufficient maturity to make vows to God that were both lawful and reasonable. That seems to be why we see women who live at home in their minority, here in Numbers 30, distinguished from women 
who are apparently older and either widowed or divorced, according to Numbers 30, verse 9. There it mentions those who do not fall under that exception, those who are widowed or divorced. Those women in their minority and living at home under the the authority of their father may have certain vows rescinded. Whereas older women who are responsible for themselves, who are in their majority, who are of age, and are either widowed or divorced, may not have their vows rescinded, even if they are precisely the same as the minor daughter living at home has made, even if they're the same vows. They cannot be rescinded if they're lawful vows. Thirdly, another circumstance commanded by the Lord in this specific case is that the father cannot unnecessarily delay in objecting to the vow made by his daughter. He must express his dissent or objection, quote, in the same day, end of quote, that he hears it. We read in Numbers 30, verse 5, But if her father disallow her in the day he heareth, not any of her vows or of her bonds wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. If the father needs a little time to carefully consider what the daughter has vowed, I would submit at least he must state to her that what she has vowed to the Lord concerns him and is under consideration by him and that he will, if he needs time to consider, if he needs time to be advised, if he needs time to study the vow that has been made, he'll get back to her very soon with a decision. But he cannot simply be silent and say nothing. He cannot sit by silent and let the matter pass for a day upon his hearing the vow without voicing any objection or without expressing some intention to more carefully study the vow or seeking advice concerning it. If the matter of the daughter's vow to the Lord should pass without a firm objection or without some stated need for further study, then the vow stands as it was made by the daughter. No changes may be made to the vow if the father says nothing in the day that he hears it. Again, assuming it's a lawful vow. Obviously, any unlawful vow, a vow concerning something that is unlawful in itself, immoral in itself, wouldn't be a vow anyway. We read in in, uh, Numbers 30, verse 4, And if her father hear her vow and her bond wherewith she hath bound her soul and her father shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand and every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. Of course, some degree of allowance must be made for the father who cannot object to the vow within the day that he hears it due to some necessities that may arise. Suppose he's involved, we're putting it into the more modern context, but suppose he's involved in a car accident and is rendered unconscious 
Or suppose he intends to object or to say something, but he immediately receives a phone call to the effect that his parent has dra uh, tragically died and he needs to immediately leave. But we can imagine, again, some necessity that might arise that, again, we would say uh, this morally, this uh, uh, has rendered him unable to respond uh, to uh, within this stated period of time to say something. But in most situations, to at least say, uh, I'm going to study that. I'm going to look at that. I'm just not sure that that's right at this point. I don't want to say no to a vow that may be, in fact, a lawful vow and one which would be appropriate for you, and I don't want to just dismiss it without any consideration, without any thought, but I am concerned about it, and I will get back to you in a very short period of time. When the father <clears throat> does object to the vow, when he hears it, and hopefully lays out his objection to his daughter, then the Lord grants to the daughter forgiveness so that she is not obligated to keep it. And perhaps here the forgiveness is for having made such a vow rashly before coming to her father, as we see in Numbers 30, verse 5, and the Lord shall forgive her because her father disallowed it. Here we're instructed that the wise thing to do is, especially for those in their minority, those who are under their... Uh, the, the roof of, uh, of uh, a father or uh, under the roof of a husband, that the wise and prudent thing is to do is to bring vows to those who are over you to seek their advice, to seek their counsel. Well, what is the nature of the vows that are under consideration here in Numbers 30? On the one hand, does the content of these vows in Numbers 30 consist of moral duties that God requires in his holy law? For example, not giving way to the fear of man in circumstances. Obviously, that's always a moral duty, that we're not to give way in fear of man. We're not to allow uh, fear to overwhelm us, to shackle us to lead us astray or to compromise the truth. That's always a moral duty. Or uh, another uh, duty from God's moral law, uh, does this vow that the daughter takes uh, have to do with worshiping only the one true God as he is prescribed in his word? or not uttering any profane speech, or respecting and obeying the lawful commands of one's parents, or up, of uh, uprooting all in sound doctrine according to our own particular station and calling, or not getting drunk, or not looking at pornography, etc., etc. Those are moral duties that are always incumbent upon us, regardless of the circumstances. Does the vow of the daughter have to do with these types of matters? Or, on the other hand, does the content of these vows in Numbers 30 consist of matters that are indifferent in themselves, such as 
wine and food or TV or exercise. Any of those things can be used sinfully, but in and of themselves, there's nothing sinful about them. We could cite all kinds of things that would fall into that category. I cannot understand how a father would have the right to annul a vow that engaged a daughter to worship the one true living God and to be chaste in her conduct at all times. I can't understand how that would ever be lawful for a father to annul a vow of that nature that pertains specifically to something that is required, that is a duty of a Christian at all times. In such a case, she's only binding herself to do what God already requires her to do in his law. However, I can understand how a father could annul a vow that engaged a daughter to walk one mile a day for exercise. If she had engaged herself in a vow to do that, exercise, walking, is, is uh, indifferent in itself. And so, to and specifically, the distance, if, if a daughter were to engage herself to do something of that nature, uh, since it's not a moral duty to walk one mile a day, even if it is beneficial to her health, it's not required, it's not a moral duty to do that. Walking for exercise is a thing that is indifferent in itself, rather than a moral duty. She may strive to walk a mile a day, but it is not prudent to make such a vow regarding a thing indifferent, for she does not know what circumstances may appear in her life that would prevent her from being able to keep that vow. And so I can understand how a father would annul that type of a vow. It's not an unlawful vow. It's not saying, you know, it's not unlawful in itself. It's indifferent. But it's not wise. It's not prudent. Those types of things would not be prudent uh, to engage oneself by way of a vow to God. And so I can understand how a father would disannul a vow of that kind. Well, having considered the context and the circumstances of the vows made in Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, let us now look more closely at the specific objection brought against the Solemn League and Covenant, wherein it is alleged that Charles II, as a national father, made null and void the Solemn League and Covenant by his act and by the act of Parliament in January 1661. As we consider the actions of King Charles I and the actions of his son, King Charles II, we shall see that Charles I was officially silent in regard to any official dissent from or objection to the Solemn League and Covenant within that specified period of time, namely, in the day that you hear the vow. 
and that Charles II actually swore to uphold the Solemn League and Covenant, not just once, but twice. So, let us look at King Charles I. Charles I was ruling in 1643 when the Solemn League and Covenant was adopted and sworn by the parliaments of England, Ireland, and Scotland. If Numbers chapter 30 is going to be used as a reason why the Solemn League and Covenant can be made null and void by the executive order of the king as a national father, then we must ask these questions. Did King Charles I officially express dissent from or objection to the Solemn League and Covenant on the day that it was sworn by the Parliament or the day that he heard it? Or did King Charles I officially ask for a period of time in which to study the document on the day that it was sworn by the Parliament or the day that he heard it before rendering his official position? Well, first, there is nothing officially stated, of which I am aware, wherein King Charles I dissented from or, or, or objected to the Solemn League and Covenant on the day that it was taken by Parliament. Just listen to the following testimony. First, Charles I specifically approved the National Covenant of Scotland. Not the Solemn League and Covenant, but the National Covenant of Scotland in August 1639 through his commissioner at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. The National Covenant was the predecessor to the Solemn League and Covenant and the National Covenant the principles, the moral principles that we find in the National Covenant of Scotland are the same moral principles that are articulated in the Solemn League and Covenant. <clears throat> But both Parliament of Scotland and the King approved the National Covenant of Scotland. Second, with regard to Charles I, Charles I did issue a proclamation declaring it unlawful for anyone to enter into the Solemn League and Covenant, but not until October the 9th. 1643, weeks after it was taken by the Parliament of Scotland, which was spread throughout the kingdom. It wasn't a, something, an isolated event, and he was uh, in England. The king was in, was in England. He certainly knew that it had been sworn uh, by Parliament. And uh, the date in which Parliament swore the Solemn League and Covenant was August the 17th, 1643, the day that the proclamation declaring it unlawful for anyone to enter into the Solemn League and Covenant by the king was in October the 9th, 1643. As I said, weeks after it was sworn by Parliament. If Charles I was a national father, by way of Numbers 30, he waited too long to dissent and to object to the Solemn League and Covenant. If we're going to apply Numbers chapter 30, 
by way of extension to, to Charles I, then he waited way too long, according to Numbers 30, to object. And I should have mentioned that that uh, it was uh, the uh, Parliament uh, in August 17, 1643, uh, of Scotland that uh, that took the covenant and the Parliament of England in September the 25th, 1643. So in either case, it was it was uh, a few weeks uh, in, from the time that uh, the proclamation by the king was issued. Now, what about Charles II? Well, Charles II not only did not officially express dissent from or object to the Solemn League and Covenant, he officially swore it, not once, but twice. First at Spey uh, in June uh, 23 of 1650, and second at Schoon, January the 1st, 1651. The first time he swore... Uh, the Solemn League and Covenant, he swore it before entering Scotland and uh, entering it as the king. And second time he swore it, he swore it at his coronation as king. Clearly, his act to rescind the Solemn League and Covenant some ten years later in 1661 could not make Nolan Void a lawful vow to God. Again, the scripture in Numbers 30 will not run to the aid of either Charles I or of Charles II, even if they both are viewed as being a national father. Finally, it may be legitimately questioned whether the Numbers 30 passage can be strictly applied to a kingdom as it is directed toward a family. For even if a king should refuse to allow, allow a lawful national covenant, and even in the day that he hears of it, does not Parliament, also being a lawful branch of the civil government, and therefore, all, therefore also a national parent, viewed collectively, have the moral and scriptural right to swear a national covenant on behalf of themselves, on behalf of the kingdom, and on behalf of all their posterity? It's not simply the king, if we're going to say, uh, look at this by way of a national father. It's not simply the king who is a national father. The parliament is likewise a national father. The king is not, we do not believe in the, in the divine right of kings. Granted, Charles I and Charles II did. They believed they were above parliament, Whereas, again, the laws of England basically uh, allowed that the Parliament was uh, jointly to rule uh, England. In February 1644, the Parliament of England issued an order commanding the covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant, to be taken throughout the Kingdom of England by all persons above the age of 18 years. The Westminster Assembly was asked to write an exhortation to accompany the order of Parliament. In it, there is the following justification for swearing the Solemn League and Covenant without, without the king's consent. Notice what Westminster Assembly says in their, in their exhortation, which was read, wherever the covenant went, 
Throughout the kingdom, this is what was read along with the covenant. Quote, that scruple that this is done without the king's consent will soon be removed. If it be remembered that the protestation of the 5th of May before mentioned was in the same manner voted and executed by both houses of the Parliament of England, and after, by order of one house alone, sent abroad to all the kingdom, his majesty not accepting against it, or giving any stop to it, albeit he was resident in person at Whitehall. Now notice here, here's the biblical justification that the assembly states. Thus Ezra and Nehemiah, in Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 9, drew all the people into a covenant without any special commission from the Persian monarch, then their sovereigns, so to do. Albeit they were not subjects, but vassals. And one of them, the servant of Artaxerxes, that is, Nehemiah was actually a servant of Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes was the one who had conquered Judah. They go on in the next paragraph, which I won't read, basically to cite historically that Queen Elizabeth and James I of England allowed leagues to be entered into with the Netherlands, who did not have a king to uh, swear on their behalf, that they entered into, Elizabeth and James entered into a league with the Netherlands, a civil league with the Netherlands, when they were being ruled by the Spanish king, King Philip. And they engaged in this covenant without their king. And so, again, by way of precedent historically, the Westminster Assembly says even the, the very precedent within England allows for a nation to enter into a civil and national covenant without a king. Likewise, if you consider under King Asa in the covenant that was sworn there, in Second Chronicles chapter 15, verses 12 and 14, and under King Hezekiah in Second Chronicles chapter 30, verses 1 and 11, you'll find that strangers from the northern kingdom of Israel came down to Judah. Northern Israel had their own king, but they did not obtain consent from their king to come down to Judah to swear and, and engage themselves by way of this national covenant renewal. They didn't seek permission or consent of the king of Israel. But again, it is looked upon here in the scripture as being warrantable without their king's consent to do so because it was a lawful covenant. Thus, it must be clear that it is not simply King Charles I of England that was a national father, but also the Parliament as well that was a national father. And in this case, the national father, namely both houses of Parliament, swore and approved the Solemn League and Covenant for the nation and all its posterity, as did Charles II, very specifically himself, on two different occasions. Now, by way of application, as we conclude, 
We should be ever so careful, dear ones, in making vows unto the Lord. Listen to the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Making a vow unto the Lord is the most serious act of worship. Though it's not an ordinary regular act of worship, it is still an act of worship. And therefore, it is always wise to seek out some mature Christian leader, whether a father, a husband, a pastor, or an elder, who can advise you about a vow that you intend to swear unto the Lord. Likewise, I would submit to you that it's wise to write the vow out exactly as you intend to keep it. So that you see what you are vowing. So there's not a multitude of interpretations that you can put upon that particular vow. And then you take that written vow, you submit it to a father, husband, pastor, or elder, that you get their input with regard to this. Could this be interpreted more than one way? And, and, And is this not only a lawful vow, but is it a reasonable vow as well? under the circumstances. By taking these steps, you will be far less likely to engage in taking a vow rashly and more likely to take a vow with all due reverence and diligence, one that you will keep. And uh, once you have entered into such a vow that cannot be rescinded by the conditions stated in Numbers 30, then it is your obligation to keep it by God's power as an act of worship, a spiritual sacrifice that you offer to the Lord as a means of grace to you. Dear ones, we must not look for reasons to excuse ourselves from lawful vows into which we have entered. We profane the name of the Lord if we do so. We teach others, our children, our husband, our wife, those who know us, we teach others by our covenant breaking that we cannot be trusted and that our God is not to be taken seriously if we treat him with such disrespect and with such dishonor. The Lord will avenge those covenants and vows made unto him and those oaths made in his great and mighty name that we Ignore that we neglect and that we disregard. There once we are daily guilty, I would submit to you, we are daily guilty in various ways of covenant breaking, every one of us. Whether it be our baptismal vows, our marital vows, our business contracts, our church covenants, or the solemn legal covenant. But dear ones, when we know and when we 
evaluate our lives as we go through these various covenants and we pray, God, help me to be faithful to the covenants, the promises, the contracts into which I've entered. When we know and realize that we've sinned against these covenants, may we look to Christ as our perfect covenant keeper who fulfills all righteousness for us, who kept that covenant of works perfectly as the second Adam on our behalf. And may we rest in his glorious covenant keeping and in his glorious perfect righteousness, seeking his forgiveness and endeavoring by his grace to obey him anew and then to press forward again. The man, the righteous man falls seven times, but he does not remain in that fallen state, even when he breaks covenant, even when he sins against the covenant. He rises again. He seeks God's forgiveness. He relies upon the righteousness of Christ. And he begins afresh. And that's what a covenant keeper does. Ultimately, Jesus is the covenant keeper. But we keep covenant when we do. Though weak and frail sin against the covenant, we still keep covenant by coming to Christ and seeking his forgiveness and acknowledging our sin. To break covenant is not only, I would submit to you, to sin against the covenant, to violate the covenant, but it is to turn our backs upon the covenant, to ignore it, neglect it, to disregard it, and to walk contrary to it, is to break covenant. Because we are all daily going to sin against the covenant or covenants that we have made. But God has a remedy, and that is through Christ, our Savior. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee and praise Thee for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has faithfully kept even that covenant of works as our second Adam, has kept that which the first Adam failed to keep and cast us, O Lord, into bondage and sin and death. Our second Adam has kept that covenant on our behalf and has bestowed upon us righteousness and forgiveness and everlasting life. We thank Thee. We rest in our Savior today and cling to Him. Lord, help us. Though we sin against Thy covenant, may we not be covenant breakers who walk away from our duties and responsibilities and ignore and neglect and disregard them altogether. We pray our Father, help us to be faithful unto Thee to grow in our love for thy covenant. For it is indeed our salvation, that covenant of grace. We thank thee, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.